Um, for some of you that may not be as familiar with the work of Star of Hope, uh, I want to just give you some quick background before we dig into the Word. Um, Star of Hope has been serving in Patterson for 106 years. I haven't been there for that long, but lately we've been using a statement to kind of describe our work and what we do. And this statement says, Star of Hope exists to foster holistic transformation among our neighbors. We accomplish this through partnership with neighbor churches and community leaders. And the short version of that is, we serve churches and organizations as they serve our community. And this is summed up, you saw earlier, our mission statement and our vision statement, but we have some core value statements as well. And core value number one is so, so important to me. To me, this is, this is actually the linchpin that, that the rest of them all hang on, and it's this idea of the local church. And it states, we support the local church believing it to be God's chosen agent to nurture people and to transform society. Another way to say this is that in addressing the issues of pain and poverty, which are real in our city, in addressing these issues, we believe the local church of Greater Patterson is at the center of God's plan for bringing about positive transformation in the Patterson community. Well, how do we do this? How do we serve the church? And many of you are familiar with some of the, the physical resources, right? You've maybe filled a box of love or donated for a backpack, things like that, our trio of hope. And that's wonderful. This is such a blessing for the churches and the pastors and the leaders that we serve. We do some, some leadership development training. We have uh, community development initiatives. We have programs like Jobs for Life and the Antioch School, uh, a, a theology training program, a summer camp program, a leadership summit that we go to every summer. But a couple of weeks ago, I had a, the privilege of having some coffee with Pastor Aaron, and he asked me an interesting question, and he said, what excites you the most about what you're doing? And I can easily get excited about things. I get excited about the different programs that we have going on. If you want to talk to me, I'll go on for hours. I'll bore you to death probably. But I really get excited about speaking about the importance of the church. And what gets me most excited is the prospect of seeing churches working together, building relationships with one another, functioning as a healthy body the way the body of Christ is designed to work. This healthy living organism, which brings me to core values number two and number three. Core value number two is partnership. We promote positive partnerships among Greater Patterson's churches, organizations, pastors, and community leaders. We want to see this partnership come together. Core value number three, unity, which we'll be talking about today. We seek the unity that God desires in the body of Christ. And this is what Paul is ultimately writing about here in Philippians chapter 2. And I think there are some important lessons for us here this morning in this passage. When you think of the Grace Church of Ridgewood body, right? 
but also when we think of the larger picture of the body of Christ, not just individual churches, but the church of Patterson, the church of Ridgewood, the church of North Jersey. So I'd ask you guys as we dig into this passage to look at it with two sets of eyes. Maybe those eyes that are looking inward and what God might want to do amongst the body here, but also those, those eyes that are looking outward beyond ourselves. And I love, I love the serve jersey idea that you guys do on your local impact Sunday each year because it's, it's, it's proof. You're putting, it, uh, you're putting uh, your boots on the ground saying we are going to be about serving our community. We're going to be about what's happening outside these four walls. And that's so, so powerful. But I want to look at it from these two different perspectives as we look at what Paul would want to teach us here. So I'm just going to read our verses for today. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, if you want to follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others." Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Let's pray one more time. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths found in your word. And I pray now that you would just work in each one of our hearts as we study together, that our hearts, our minds, our ears would be open to what you want to say to each one of us this morning. Meet us each right where we're at, Lord, we pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul finished chapter 1 of Philippians speaking to the church at Philippi about how to deal with difficulties from outside sources. He actually said some hard things here in this passage. If you look back at verse 29, he says, To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not just to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This could be a sermon in and of itself. But Paul was telling the Philippians how to stand strong for the Lord amongst these external conflicts. And now here in chapter 2, he tells them how to deal with some of the internal conflicts that might happen in the body of Christ. 
And Paul's appeal to them, I believe, is a very powerful appeal. It's an appeal to unity. But not just to unity. He tells them the way to unity. And I've titled this this message today, Unity Through Humility. Now, in case you think I'm, I'm, I'm real wise in coming up with a sermon title, it's actually the title in my Bible at the top of chapter 2, <laughs> right? In the New King James, they put some good titles there. But that's what this is about. And in verse 1, I love it because Paul gives us the foundation that all of this is to be built upon. And he gives us four questions, four rhetorical questions. He's asking them. It's a letter he's writing, so he's not really expecting an answer, but there's, there are questions that would be obvious answers to them. Verse 1, I'll read it again. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and I'll stop there for a second, this is the foundation that this, this supernatural unity in the body of Christ is to be founded upon. He says if there's any consolation in Christ. Second Thessalonians, Paul writes and he says, God loves us and has given us an everlasting comf- consolation and good hope by grace. Of course there's consolation in Jesus Christ, right? Charles Spurgeon says it this way, he says, The Holy Spirit consoles us, but Christ is the consolation. He says, if I may use the figure, the Holy Spirit is the physician, but Christ is the medicine. And there is consolation to be found in Christ. And if we're Christians, we understand this idea. It's a no-brainer, right? He says, if there's any comfort of love, Corinthians says that that God is the God of all comfort. And the word comfort in this passage is this this Greek word paraklesis. And the idea behind this is it's more than just kind of a soothing type of sympathy. It has the idea of strengthening and helping and making us strong. The Latin word is this word fortis, where you get this, this word fortify, right? which means to be brave, to be strong. And the love of God in our lives makes us strong and makes us brave. So there is obviously for us this foundation as Christians of this comfort of love. He talks about the fellowship of the Spirit, this word koinonia. It means having everything in common. And the Holy Spirit fills and guides and moves in our lives in such a powerful way when we have this fellowship in the Spirit with Him but with one another. So there's this fellowship of the Spirit and He says if there is any affection and mercy. His final rhetorical question assumes that every Christian knows something of the affection of God and the mercy of God. He mentions all of these things in a matter that they should be obvious to the Christian's experience. One Bible teacher says to make his point, he could have just as easily said, if water is wet, if fire is hot, if rocks are hard, right? They're obvious questions. And the point is this, the foundation of what Paul is about to say 
is based on this assumption of these things in our lives. He's about to challenge the church at Philippi and the church today to live in unity. And this challenge is based on all of these things, these questions, that, these, these, these answers that we've experienced already, that we've received Christ's consolation of, and comfort of love, that we have fellowship with the Spirit of God and through the Spirit of God, and that we know something of God's affection and mercy. Because Paul says in verse 2, Therefore, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So we saw the foundation of unity. Now we're seeing a description of unity. This kind of unity is the goal. This is what we're aiming for. What follows in these verses are descriptions of how to achieve and practice this unity mentioned in verse 2. What does it look like? The description, it's like-minded. Having the same love. Being in one accord. Having one mind. If you read the book of Acts, giving a historical account of the birth and the growth of the church after Jesus ascended into heaven. One of the interesting commentaries you see throughout the book is that they were all in one accord. They had all things in common. They had one mind. There's this picture, this model for us today that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt they were all in this together. And this is the type of unity that Jesus actually prayed for for them. John chapter 17. If you're familiar with the prayer, you don't have to turn there now, but Jesus is it's it's just days before he's going to go to the cross. And he prays And he prays for himself and for his disciples. And he prays for all believers, you and me. And his prayer in John 17, 11 is that they would be one as we are one. Speaking of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus could have prayed all sorts of things for these guys and for us. But his number one prayer, the number one thing on his heart was that they would be one. Isn't that interesting? Just about to go to the cross, what's he worried about? The oneness of the body of Christ. This is the type of unity that Jesus prayed for us. One of the things that excites me the most in my role at Star of Hope to answer Aaron's question is to be a part of a group of 10 pastors from around the city of Patterson leading a movement around the city of prayer and seeking this type of John 17 unity for the church of Patterson. And there's some exciting things happening. Like I said, I can get excited about stuff real quick, but we have pastors' prayer every month at Star of Hope Ministries. Several weeks ago, we had a, a luncheon where we had over 65 pastors and leaders coming together simply to say, we recognize the need to pray together and to build relationships with one another. This coming Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. 
And this group, we've, I, man, I, I'm, I'm like a pig in mud. I get excited about being able to organize this stuff. On the National Day of Prayer, we're going to have prayer on the steps of City Hall. We'll probably have 75 or 100 people there. And then throughout the rest of the day, we're going to have outdoor prayer in all six wards of the city of Patterson. Pastors and leaders from that neighborhood coming together and saying, hey God, we need your help and we're in this together. We have uh, now, so far we've done three pastors prayer summits and uh, we have another one coming up in October where Lord willing we'll have 50 or 75 pastors and leaders going away for an overnight retreat saying we want to be about praying together and building relationships with one another. That's what it gets exciting to me, because that's when we can really see some change happen. And this is a difficult challenge, let me tell you. Let me ask for your prayers and being a part of this. It's a difficult challenge, but I know how important it was to Jesus, and I know how it pleases our Father in heaven when He sees His kids getting along. Working together. Let me tell you, there's nothing better for me as a father than when I come home at the end of the day and I find my kids all playing together, enjoying each other, getting along, not fighting. Not my kids, they never fight, right? No arguing, all having the same mind. That just brings me joy. It's a great thing to, say, to see. And, and the same thing could be said of us as God's children. His desire is to see us be one, to see us get along, to see us unified of one mind. And Paul is making this appeal to the church to be unified, to be one. If we've ever experienced the consolation of Christ, the comfort of His love, the fellowship of the Spirit, His affection and mercy, which is assumed if we're claiming to be Christians then Paul's joy will be fulfilled if we're living in unity. Christ's prayer is that we're living in unity. So the next question might be, how? How can we begin to live as individuals and as a church in unity? How can we be like-minded and in one accord? Maybe you're saying, Pastor Matt, I'm convinced unity is important. But how do we do this? Check out verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. There's a prescription that we can take to bring about unity. And it's called humility. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. This is this idea of don't do things to make yourself look great, right? It's not a competition. How often do we as the church or individuals in the church, we neglect this idea? We want ourselves to look great. We want to look important. We want to be bigger and better than the person next to us. Paul found it important here. He said, selfish ambition. Ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. 
There is a good ambition to glorify God ultimately. But he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition, through a wrong motivation. He says, let nothing be done through conceit, thinking that we're great. This excessive idea about who we are, looking on ourselves too favorably. And both of these these first two things, they deal with our motivation. Really, our selfish motivation, our selfish pride. We're so quick to play the comparison game. Look at that person over there. Guys, pride affects all of us. Not just some of us. Not even those that look prideful on the outside. And he preaches against this, Paul does. He writes against this to to be watchful about this, this issue called pride. It causes us to feel hurt when someone snubs us or ignores us or takes credit for something we did. Pride is behind the envy that we feel towards people who might seem to be more successful than we are. But he says, in lowliness of mind, let us esteem others as better than himself. This third part here, this step of unity, is is completely contradictory to think of others as better than ourselves. It's contradictory to the attitude of the world, isn't it? Lowliness of mind is like the least attractive thing in the world's eyes. But do you want to be great in God's kingdom? Then be a servant. Don't just look at your own needs. Look at the needs of others around you. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. I actually think true humility is found in knowing what's true about yourself. Because sometimes we can put ourselves down so much and it's lies that we're feeding ourselves with and we think, oh, I'm being humble, but it's actually not true, right? We put ourselves down. Think about it. Moses wrote about himself. He said, Moses is the most humble man alive. How could that be? (laughs) Unless, unless it was true, right? That's the only way it could be. So, So true humility is actually knowing what is right and true about us. No more, no less. And the picture here is a picture where if I consider you above me and you consider me above you, And this amazing thing happens where we have a community where everyone is looked up to and no one is looked down upon. And if we truly desire the the unity that Jesus desired, let me tell you, I think we need a heavy dose of humility in the church of America today. What would it look like If we took just these two verses to heart, verses 3 and 4, how would this change? How would this change the equation for the church in America? 
or in North Jersey or in Patterson or in Ridgewood? What would this look like? Some amazing things could happen. And we see it depicted for us, actually, in verse 5. We see a depiction of humility. What better example than Christ himself? It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Here's Jesus. He is God. He knows what's true about himself, right? And it's a clear statement of his, his deity But he made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a servant. There's no better picture in the scriptures of this than in John chapter 13. Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. You remember the story? They're looking around and they're saying, where's the foot washer? And Jesus pulls out the basin and he grabs a towel and he goes around. Here's God in the flesh. Can you picture that? Going around to his disciples and why? I mean, I love you guys. I know some of you. I'm sorry, I don't want to wash your feet. (laughs) But he humbled himself. He was humble in that he took the form of a man in the first place. He was humble in his obedience to his heavenly Father and his submission to the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, he was humble in submitting to the death on the cross. I mean, we just celebrated this last week. This sacrifice. This was the, this was the lowest of the low. In that day, a Roman citizen was not even allowed legally to be crucified because it was such a low form of execution. One... <laughs> One Bible teacher puts it this way. He says, this was the very bottom rung on the ladder from the throne of God. Picture the throne room of heaven coming all the way down to this lowest of low, even, like Paul writes, the death of the cross. This shows that there is no limit to what God will do to show his love for you and me. There is no limit to it. This was and forever will be the ultimate. And he puts himself in that position, unlimited love and sacrifice and humility for you and for me. And that's the kind of love and sacrifice and humility we're to have for one another. Verse 9 continues on where it talks ultimately about Christ exalted. It says, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's economy, the heaven, heavenly economy is so backwards from what we think from the way we operate here on earth, we think that if we want to be exalted, 
that we need to lift ourselves up, puff ourselves up, get noticed, put ourselves in the limelight. I mean, seriously, our culture actually invented a real thing called a selfie, right? We are so self-centered, so focused, we want self-focused, we want to get noticed, but that's not how God's economy works. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, whoever humbles himself like a little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. First Peter, it says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And we see here in Philippians 2, God remaining true to his promises. See what happens to the humbled Jesus? The name that is above every name. Every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's an amazing thing the way God's economy works when we are willing to humble ourselves. Let me close with this challenge for you. And it's really taken from verse 5. It's a challenge for us individually and corporately. And the challenge is this, where it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He tells us, let this mind, have this kind of mindset. It shows us this is something we've got to choose to be obedient. This is a way we have to choose to walk. We have to let it be so. And if you're sitting here today and you consider yourself a Christian, you're identifying yourself saying, I'm with Jesus, then understand, according to this passage, what does this mean to us? Corporately, as the church of God, What does it mean? As a functioning body of believers, I think it means we all need to get on the same page, right? If any of you have ever done volunteer sessions with us at Star of Hope and I've been leading them, one of the things I always mention is, all right, it's important that we all are on the same page. I used to coach middle school boys basketball and I learned very quickly, it doesn't matter, yeah, right, Brian? It doesn't matter so much what offense or what defense we're running. It's just important that we're all running the same defense. And the same is true with volunteer groups at Star of Hope. We've got to get all on the same page together. But even here, it does matter what we do when we talk about being the church. And Jesus' heart's cry was to see his followers, his disciples, living as one in complete unity. I think Paul's argument for us today in this passage, we need to follow the example of our Lord, and it's an example of humility. What does this mean for us individually? It means we need to die to ourselves. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 16 Verse 24, I'll read it for you as we close. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, 
let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Guys, that willingness for us to set aside what we are, to become a servant to others, to make ourselves of no reputation, not esteeming ourselves more highly than we should, but just considering ourselves privileged to be servants of Jesus Christ. When the church of God really wraps our mind around this idea, I believe we can see some amazing, amazing things happen in our world, in our communities, in our country, in Ridgewood, in Patterson. Unity becoming by being humble, laying aside ourselves. Let me pray for you guys as I close.